morning, everybody. Wendy, I so appreciate your testimony. And what I like about Wendy is she's bold and she leads, but she's very gentle and quiet about it. (laughs) You don't really match the caricature that the media paints of people in your position, you know, or that believe and represent the things that you do. So uh, it's nice because uh, we need to be reminded of that from time to time. I think Wendy would probably be one of the first to tell us that um, being able to minister well to the people that need it the most in their moment of crisis or greatest moments of fear, they need a personal touch. They need somebody that can be gentle with them, but but hold this higher standard of truth in, in, in a firm way. But firm doesn't always have to be nasty. Firm doesn't have to be scary or intense. And so uh, personal touch and personal invitation and and personal effectiveness goes a long way. This is what you and I respond to, right? Marketers have figured this out that as much as they can relate to you on a personal level or I get junk mail in the in the in the mail. It's where mail comes, right? And it looks like somebody hand wrote it, right? And you look at it, wait, that was printed from a computer. They want me to think Enough at least to be able to open the envelope that somebody hand wrote something to me. And I got to admit, that's what draws me. And sometimes you're like, eh, eh. oh, somebody wrote. No, they didn't. Somebody's trying to check on my car warranty again, or someone's got a, a key in the envelope. that's going to start that one vehicle on the lot if I use it or something like that. So they, those that are in that kind of world or in that sort of game know how much you and I value a personal touch, a personal approach. It means something to us. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, I think, the way that we were created. And we've been walking through John chapter 1, and John has been setting the stage. It's taking us a while to get to the introduction of Jesus, at least in John's gospel. And John's been setting the stage as he's been writing this, that this is a personal Savior that's making his way to us. He has a face. He has a voice. He speaks the language that you and I speak. He he has a name. He comes from a town, you know. This is the stage that, that John is setting, and he's introduced us already to John the Baptist, separate from the author of the book. But they're all pointing to the fact that even John the Baptist said to us last week, there is one among you you don't know yet. He's going to step forward. And you're going to be like, oh, wait, he's been in the crowd for a little bit, or we've seen him around, or we've heard about him, and he's saying he is from among you, and he is going to be the savior of the world. He is God incarnate walking in front of you. But, but it was important to both the author and the Baptist to be able to point to him as a person. It's, it's important for God to have come to us in a form we would recognize, appreciate, and allow him to approach us and that we could approach him. That was all part of the plan for it to be personal. And so we're going to pick up on our text in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, to see this personal Savior and, and see the lengths that he will go to prove who he is and how much he knows us and how we will be able to know him. Verse 35. The next day again, this series is happening over a few days. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. He's been at this for a while. We said that his following or those that have come through his ministry are estimated to be about a million people. I mean, there's a lot going on here. 
But John the Baptist had at least two disciples. We assume probably a lot more than that. But two of his uh, closest ones are standing there with him. Verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, remember this from last week. He says, behold, right there, that guy right there, lamb of God, to which the Jewish ear perked up and said that that means sacrifice. That means replacement. That means going instead of me. It means the provision for me. So John the Baptist is saying right there, there he is, Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, it's a sign of great respect. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Jesus asks them the question, he stops them dead in their tracks, has them pause early in this journey. You're starting to take steps, you're kind of breathing down my neck, you're kicking your own dirt on my sandals and everything. I'm going to stop you right there and say, why are you following me? What, what decision have you gone through that you're pursuing me? I mean, obviously things are going pretty good for John. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of fulfillment. If you're feeling like you want to be in ministry and learning from somebody, why are you following me? And it's interesting that a little bit later as we get through this text, he's going to answer the question for them because he knows why they're following him. But suffice it to say that Jesus takes a moment, pauses to challenge them on their personal desires. This doesn't happen a lot for us in life. We like the things we like without giving it a lot of thought as to why we like it. And very rarely do we ever challenge one another. Why do you like this? Why are you doing this? We usually just kind of do things. We feel like it's kind of automatic or it's just the next thing in front of me to do. Jesus wasn't going to take any chances with them, but it wasn't because he was suspicious or protecting himself or any of those things. He needed to hold up a mirror. He needed to have them stop dead in their tracks and think about, why would I do this? I think it's a fair question. Jesus wants these guys to have an honest evaluation of their own hearts. Now, we're a couple of thousand years beyond this story now in our experience and we could easily say, hey, look, we probably get it. You know, a lot of Christians are following Jesus or they are warming up by the fire with Jesus or something. But we know as the way the story develops, when he starts taking the persecution and and uh, and, and he's crucified and everything, that even the most devoted of his followers start to scatter. And we've seen a lot of scattering ever since that we're, we're fairly thin-skinned, we're a little bit light when it comes to our dedication and our commitment. Now we understand why Jesus would ask this question because it's a fair question. But imagine how strange it would have been for them to hear this then. Why are you following me? And we could read their response as a bit of a choke, a little bit of a, uh, well, I know we hadn't uh, thought about that. We just... um we just want to know, uh, where are you staying anyway? You know, we could read it that way and think that maybe they're just kind of fumbling, but there's something that's going on here that is important to the role of a rabbi and his devotees, those that are following him. And so the question's actually quite legitimate. The question is one of, would you invite us to continue to follow you further? They say, where are you staying? 
we have to ask ourselves this question from time to time. And I feel funny asking this of people who have come out in negative 20 degree weather today or whatever it is out there. Or have weathered, if you will, sort of this strange time the church goes through in a pandemic, or you have been weathering the unpopularity of Christianity for a long time now. It feels funny to ask ask you guys this, but it still is important for us to get this question every once in a while. Are we more fans of Jesus because of what he does and the attention he gets and the things he might do for us, or are we willing to be followers would we dare ask the question well jesus the reason why i'm following you is i want to know where you're staying this was a common occurrence in their understanding of discipleship you don't just come to a lecture you don't just download some good material and say well it's pretty interesting i'm going to see if he writes a new book in the next year and i'm going to devote myself to a school of thought it really became a devotion to living with that rabbi And you'd say, well, why would a rabbi subject himself to that? Why would he open himself up to having this little shadow around him wherever he goes? It's because they also served him and his needs and things. And so there's a a win-win aspect going on here. So that disciple is at the feet of the rabbi saying, I'm going to learn from your wisdom and glean from your experience and everything. And at the same time, I'm going to wash your dishes and vacuum your rug and all that kind of stuff. So all of that is going on in this give and take relationship. So the question of, Where are you staying is this hope of maybe he'll take us in. Maybe we could serve him in the same way that other disciples get to serve their uh, rabbi. So this word of discipleship has gone through some different iterations. And so it's important for us to look at what is going on in, in a little bit of the Jewish culture, what's going on a little bit at the time of the day and how it's morphed into uh, what we understand it to be now. But the element or the principle that first sticks out to me that carries into our understanding of following Jesus today is this idea of it. It begins with an invitation from the one who, who owns all the cards, the one who has all the control as to whether or not this relationship is going to go forward. Jesus could have easily said, I'll see you tomorrow. You need to stick with John. He needs you more. That kind of, I need my space. I'm, I'm going to warm myself up to this and everything. Jesus knowingly of this whole what could happen next, just says, well, come and see. He wants to give them hope that this thing is progressing. It's taking the next step. It begins with an invitation from the rabbi. That's how you know you're in. But you're not going to live with someone. You're not going to devote your time and skills and service to them if you don't expect it to take a while. This is... This is the aspect of them moving in, living with them. And, 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 and it's changed a lot since then. We don't really talk about discipleship as we don't buddy you all up to say, okay, we're going to pair you up. You're going to be in somebody's underneath somebody's roof for the next six months. And you're going to let us know how it went. That's our new discipleship program at the church. In our day and age, we'd say, that's a cult. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not doing that. And even if we didn't think it was a cult, most of us would be like, I am not letting that person live with me for six months. That's just the nature of it. I will get together with coffee with them. I'll lead their small group. I'll do those kinds of things. I want a little bit of distance. I want a little bit of safe space here. 
but I'm devoting my time. And that development has occurred. The philosophers started coming in, Socrates, they were looking at all this kind of thing and they were going, it looks a lot like servitude. We think it could be maybe a little bit more sit at the feet of a teacher in a crowd and, and have it balanced out that way and download some content and then you're, you're devoting yourself to the teaching. But we don't like the marrying of this aspect of now you're in there vacuuming the rugs and doing the dishes and all that kind of stuff. And so over time, that concept started to soften. But it was still intended to be attached to someone for knowledge or their experience or their wisdom to glean from that rabbi, from that mentor. That's why they moved in. In Luke 640, the scripture says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So it's pretty obvious what the goal is. There's an old Jewish expression even that when thinking about this relationship that said that you want to be so close to your rabbi that their dust gets on your feet. So in other words, the expression was, do you have the dust of your rabbi on your feet? So the understanding is as they move, I'm closely behind and we, we got to start thinking about if Jesus were asking us the question today, and I know it's not mechanically sound in sermon preparation to ask such penetrating questions right at the outset. But if we were to ask ourselves the question, if Jesus said, do you have any of my dust on your feet? How close could we say we've been following him in our day and age, in our experience, in our culture of individualism we let jesus get down the road a piece we might track him on the stalker app that some people have like okay yeah he's getting a little out of range i'll go catch up with him now we let him get down the road a piece he starts and then we get a little distracted with what's going on in the market or stopping by this village or catching up with these people and everything but we can see him in the distance so we know how to get to him when we need it the concept that was going on in discipleship is you can't afford to miss a minute of what he might say or do Don't let the distance grow between you and him. Let it be so obvious that the dust that covers your feet came from his shoes. And the other portion of this idea of discipleship that, that took place then that I think we can extract for now is that it aims to duplicate. We see this happening in the context itself. We're going to see from Andrew and Philip and others that they're going to say, hey, why don't you come follow too, that it moves on to this next level of it isn't just Jesus going, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, that others that are following him say, you should follow him, follow him, follow him. That's what's happening. The goal, even in their time, in their age, was likeness, not knowledge. I'm not just spending the time with you, allowing you into my home or anything just so that you can learn what I've learned. I want you to start behaving and acting like me. There was that much expectation in this role of discipleship. Now it colors for us a little bit Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 20, which are the last commands he gave to mankind before leaving. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. This idea of observing him and watching all that he did. And he says, now go and duplicate that. So the expectation is let them follow you like I let you follow me. Paul says in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, that's God. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's always been God's goal for us to, to start to share in his likeness, to start to look, act, and, 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 and uh, speak like he does. 
John, the author of our gospel here, also wrote, as we've said, a series of smaller letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John 3, he says, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, the goal is revealed. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we ask ourselves the question, is there any of Jesus dust on my feet? Am I keeping him close? Am I keeping up with him? Am I running at a pace so he doesn't out, out, uh, out distance himself from me? And Jesus is willing to stop these guys in their tracks, challenge their personal desires and say, what do you think is in this for you? What's your goal? What's your end game? What are you thinking you want out of this? It's a very helpful kind of resetting question, especially if they've been following John for a while and they've just been caught up in all the activity and all that's going on. And the mindset is just, you know, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. Sometimes we don't take a second to go, why do I want him to come? What, what do I even need from him? Do I pause enough to evaluate that? These penetrating questions seem to be Jesus' MO throughout his entire ministry. The things that are meant to stop us in our tracks. The question is, do we take the time to allow those questions to stop us in our tracks? So Jesus is challenging their personal desires, but he's also going to continue to to press this gauge, if you will, on the person of who he is and how well he knows those that are following him. So let's continue in verse 40. He says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Make note of those two names, Simon Peter's brother. We'll be talking about that. So Andrew first found his brother Simon and he said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. So he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You know what? You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Simon comes to Jesus with a name that even in his own circles is associated with being brash and impulsive from time to time violent. And so Simon's carrying a definition to his name that even comes from Simeon, which in the Old Testament is a a character that also has those things associated with him, particularly the violent side of things and stuff. So Simon might have been appropriately named because as we get to know Peter throughout the New Testament, he's pretty aggressive. He's, he's in the mix. Sometimes he's quite impulsive. He usually has to ask for a lot of forgiveness. We've talked a lot about Peter in the last year. Jesus says, you're Simon. I get that. But I, I think there's a name change in your future. And Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means rock. And he, and he starts to use both names to Peter's advantage, or at least to Peter's growth. We're going to see that at times when Jesus calls him Simon, it's on purpose. Simon, you're kind of acting like Simon right now. Not quite the Peter I had in mind for you. And he starts pointing this out. So when we start seeing Simon and Peter in the scripture, we take special note of the fact, how is he behaving right now? Is he acting like old him, Simon, brash, impulsive, violent, that kind of thing? Or is he Peter, which is the rock? And we see that we refer to him more as Peter as the New Testament progresses. So we ask ourselves another 
kind of penetrating question, one that makes us stop in our tracks and ask, why are we following Jesus? The question is, who were we before we met him? What was the name that we would have come to Jesus with? What did our name represent? What did, what did the name Brent mean in terms of my character and my conduct, my, my habits and, and maybe some of my strengths or any of those kinds of things? What was the name that I brought to Jesus? And what might be the name? He said, now I know that's your name, but this is the name I have for you. That's coming. What would that name be? These questions help us because it allows us to kind of shake off our self-delusions like somehow we aren't sinners who are saved by grace, that we don't have things that we need to leave behind as we come to him, that we walk in newness with him. He says, your name is Cephas or or Peter, and that is a rock. And think about the opposite of impulsive is stable. I think that's what Peter, I mean, what Jesus is getting at with the name Peter is he goes, I am growing you towards somebody who's reliable, who's sturdy, who is stable, instead of somebody who's impulsive and is constantly sticking their foot in their mouth. What would be your new name that Jesus might be giving you? Might it mean patient? You're impatient, and I'm going to call you patient eventually. Might it be faithful? How about disciplined? I'm going to call you reliable. Or I'm going to call you tender. Or I'm going to call you bold. These names have a tendency to be the exact opposite of who we are before we meet Jesus. And we sometimes forget that he is making us, that he is moving us forward, that he has an intended goal for us. That's what this discipleship is going to produce. The more of his dust I get on my feet, the more I become that person who might be seen as patient or faithful or reliable or trustworthy or tender or bold or any of those things. What would be your new name after meeting Jesus? Let's move forward. In verse 43, we see that Jesus is starting to approach these men in an extremely personal way. They have longings, they have curiosities, they have interests that they bring to him, and he intends to meet every one of them. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is translated house of fishing. So we know what they do in Bethsaida. We know what these men are really, really good at. A lot of fish in their life. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him. We found the one Moses in the law and the prophets were writing about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael's response is a little bit more like, why should I care about a son of who? Joseph? Am I supposed to know him? What's, who's Jesus? You're telling me that, that our Savior is going to come from a place that we think nothing of, that we, uh, you know, we're living in Cana, we're looking at Nazareth, and we're going to a pokey little town, their football team stinks, all this kind of stuff. I mean, you expect me to think the Messiah came from there? All of that is underneath Nathaniel's next comment. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can almost hear Nathaniel say, anywhere but there. I've been looking for Messiah and you blow my expectations and my anticipations with such 
heartbreaking news. Like, no, 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 anywhere but Nazareth. What are you talking about? Can anything good come out of that place? Philip says in a duplicated action, because he's been discipled a little bit, come and see. Jesus, where are you staying? Come and see. Philip says, I should learn from my rabbi. I should get some of his dust on my feet. I'm going to use his exact same language. Come and see. Simple, right? But someone's been paying attention. What I find really interesting about this is it's Jesus is starting to say the things that Nathaniel needed to hear. He's even saying it through Philip. Philip is giving Nathaniel an invitation to come check it out. And what we find out about Nathaniel is that he's a studier. He knows his scriptures. He's studying prophecy. He's looking for the arrival of Messiah. And so if someone was going to come and just cram it down his throat, these are all the reasons why Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah. Instead, Philip says, I'm just going to get out of your way. You're a curious man. I'm going to lead you to him and you'll figure it out when you see him. This is what Nathaniel needed to hear. And Jesus is going to show that he can meet Nathaniel at his fixation level. You and I ponder some things, don't we? We, we obsess about some things. There's things that we think of or philosophies that we form or core convictions that we have. We don't always say them, but the people that know us most go like, that just pours out of that person. I know you care about this. You know, some of you are like, a, I got to vacuum and polish my car all the time. And some of you are like, what? You can vacuum a car? How do you do that? You know, there's just these little things, these little idiosyncrasies in life, the things that we care about and the people that know us go, no, no, you're really passionate about that sort of thing. I'm just sharing one from my own life. I guess that's a revealing statement. I'm on the vacuum side, just in case you're wondering. Not if you looked at my car right now, but. So what does Jesus say in verse 47? This is what happens. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You can see Jesus making a big deal of his arrival. So Nathaniel said to him, Wah, shucks, you don't know me, I don't know. He says, how do you know me? Nathaniel's going, well, I think you got me pegged. Seems a little bit braggadocious, doesn't it? Like, And last time I used that word, somebody had to go look it up. I don't think it exists. Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? How do you have me pegged? Jesus answered him and said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel must have been primed and ready for any glimmer of hope that this could be him because within seconds, he says, Rabbi, again, that sign of respect, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I like what's starting to brew in this, in this whole dialogue between Jesus and Nathaniel. There's some, some hidden things in here that I think are going to be really helpful for us to see what's actually taking place here. And it's, it's kind of interesting, but it's really, really dynamic and powerful when you see it playing out. Jesus addresses Nathaniel with a, with a phrase and a title that certainly would kind of build him up in front of others, but we're not really getting from the text that Nathaniel was an egotist. But Jesus said the thing that probably Nathaniel just needed to hear. He says, here's an Israelite indeed, someone who knows his truth, someone who knows the practices, the traditions. This guy is a great representative of you, but in him is no deceit. That's going to be key for us here in a second. 
This must have mattered to good old Nate. He must have loved hearing the fact that somebody finally recognized he's not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. It's not because Jesus is saying he's perfect, he's not without sin, or that he's without sin. What he's saying is he doesn't intend to to manipulate people. He doesn't intend to get an advantage or a leg up on people through deceit. Nathaniel might have been thinking, finally, somebody gets me. How do you know me so well? He says, well, I saw you under the fig tree. And, and I admit that my mind first goes to a vision and he's literally sitting under a fig tree and reading and he may have been. But there's also an expression that's coming from the language where they would often refer to somebody who was no neck deep in their studies and, and looking at the principles and kind of absorbing and pondering and ruminating on all of these things that they're under the fig tree. It's like if you had said, I was deep in my study. You know, I don't picture you being in the furthest corner hiding behind a thing with one little book, but it was, I was locked in, I was engrossed. And, and so that expression of you are under the fig tree could be Jesus seeing him literally under a fig tree because they existed and it was a thing to do. But he might also be saying, I know what you are studying. I know that you are looking into the scriptures intently. And I know that this idea of you having no deceit will be very important to you based on what you've been studying. Nathaniel's response of you must be the son of God might be jumping ahead of our ability to even read the text or our our, uh, ability to get there fast enough. And I think what Jesus is pointing out to Nathaniel here is that I will travel down any road to show you how much I love you. I will customize my language. I will say the things that mean something to you. I will speak into your ear based on your experiences, your fears, your shortcomings, your failures, any of those things. I will arrive to you the way you needed me to arrive to you. It isn't because Jesus panders. It isn't because he is manipulated by us. Well, I won't believe until he comes to me this way because I love you, Nathaniel, so much. I will speak to you in the language that your thoughts are fixated on. And I think this is what's going on here. And Nathaniel is going to get to see some amazing things. At least this is what Jesus is giving him a foreshadowing of. He says in verse 50, Jesus answered to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That's all it took, Nathaniel? You're going to see greater things than these. So Jesus continues to say, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And we might think, yeah, that sounds right. Sounds true. We picture that Jesus has great communication with the angels and that God is reaching down to man and all these kinds of things. So it's a really cool expression, a a great metaphor, all these things. But I think it meant something to Nathaniel specifically. This is pointing to a story of um, uh, of Jacob. What the you're heading in the Bible will say the story of Jacob's ladder, where Jacob is this deceitful character. He's got a brother named Esau, and they're tricking each other back and forth in really costly, kind of ugly ways. We won't revisit all of the story back in the middle of Genesis. But a birthright means a lot to kids then. There's this an inheritance, this is a, a special blessing from the father and and uh um, uh, uh, there, there's all this like brotherly deceit. I'm going to get that birthright of that inheritance when I want it, the way I want it. 
And then eventually it comes back to haunt Jacob because he's fooled Esau for the last time. His mom's even involved in it. He has to dress differently. He's taking advantage of his father in his darkest days on his deathbed. And he, he steals the inheritance from Esau. And Esau says, you fooled me for the last time. And so his mother says, your brother plans to kill you. Get out of here. So Jacob goes running down the road. And with all of his deceit, with all of his trickery, with all of those things, God still says to him, I have a plan for you. As much as you're trying to mess it up, I have a plan to go through you and I will be faithful for my own purposes through your life. This fear that you're living in, because even the scripture says that the wicked flee when no one's pursuing them. And here's, here's Jacob. He's like, I have someone pursuing me. My mom said your brother Esau is going to kill you. So I'm running for good reason. But while he's out there in the desert, scripture says he puts a rock under his head for a pillow. You know, you're in desperate times then. When he's at his peak of loneliness and thinking, I have done myself in now. There's no way I'll have the blessing of God. I won't even live past this this year because my brother's going to catch me and everything. All of this is going wrong. And God comes to him in a dream and shows him this vision of angels going up and down on a ladder. And it might seem a little bit weird, but it's God's message of saying, I have my plan coming from heaven to man and from man to heaven. And that message and that communication and that contact is all playing out. Jesus comes and says to Nathaniel, I saw what you were studying under the fig tree. And you were studying about the character of Jacob and how deceitful he was and how isolated and lonely he was. Hey, listen, Nathaniel, I recognize that that's not your MO. I recognize that you're not in this life to pull a fast one on people. I recognize that as you read something like this, you might get offended and upset that why would Jacob be blessed? Why would he be used? Why would God's plan go through someone like him? I mean, some of us don't intend to do any of those things. There might've been some self pride and some righteousness there and stuff. Jesus says, I get that's not you, but listen, you follow me. You're going to see greater things in those kinds of visions. What you're going to see is I am that ladder. You're going to see that I am the bridge between that gap between man and God or the heavens. And you're going to see me at first blush from the front row. You're going to see me becoming that bridge between man and God. Remember I said that Jesus answers for these followers what is question of What are you seeking? They don't even know exactly how to answer that. They just know the next step is to say, where are you staying? We want to stay with you. They have no idea really what they're getting into. They have no idea what the lessons are going to be or what they're going to be asked or challenged to do. So Jesus starts answering these questions for him. He says, I know what you're seeking, Peter. You're you're seeking a rescue from who you are. You're seeking a a rescue from being Simon. You don't want to be Simon anymore. It's not cutting it for you. There's emptiness. There's a lack of fulfillment. There's all those things. And I am the one that can make you Peter. What are you seeking, Nathaniel? Though Nathaniel wasn't the original recipient of that question. Nathaniel could answer that and say, I'm seeking an awareness or a knowledge, the fact that Messiah is real. And that this idea of our gap between us and God is this impossible chasm to bridge. I need to know that I am in uh, uh, acceptance with the Lord, that I am his child. Jesus says, that's what I'm here for. What we're seeking is hardly ever the first thing that comes out of our mouth. 
The things that we're seeking live and dwell in much deeper places in the chasms of our heart. And we're thinking, I don't know if anybody can meet this. I don't know if there's ever any answer or fulfillment to these things Jesus is saying there is. Questioning our motives for following Jesus, I think, is is a fair question. It's fair game. Jesus has every right to ask us that. But again, it's not just so that his mission is protected or so he doesn't have a bunch of people wasting his time. He asks that question so you and I can come to terms with why we really follow him. So my encouragement to you this morning is to be willing to let Jesus ask you why. Don't be offended by that. Don't think, who? why would you think I'm not following you. I came out in the cold. I've been sticking with this whole thing called faith for a long time. And people have ridiculed me and I've had to, how how dare you ask me? Let him ask the question. Help it to reset, to be careful, to take inventory. This is a good question for all age levels. Doesn't matter if you're, if you're new or young, we know that a lot of our teens are going to be going on a retreat soon and they're going to have that kind of daily experience of being asked that question, why do I follow Jesus? But it's not just a challenge for the young. No matter how long we've been in this, we need to be open to receiving that question. And if it's revealed that it's for any reason less than just being in his presence, no matter where he leads, we need to humbly ask him to change our desire. Jesus never leaves us the way we are. We come to him as Simons and he tells us we're going to be Peters. He can promise this because he's the one doing the transforming work. He's not saying, I believe in you, Peter. He's saying, because I know me. I'm going to make you a Peter. You just need to hang on, be available to it. He does the transforming work. What is the new name that Jesus is putting over your life that you go, I don't know why he sees me that way. I'm not going to be that guy in this lifetime. I'm not going to be this that girl in this lifetime. How do you need to come to terms with that? Ask God to reveal the name he would give you. And I, you know what I'm saying, name metaphorically here. Ask, Lord, what areas of my character are you seeking to grow? And how do I surrender to that process? And we need to remember that Jesus will go to whatever lengths necessary to prove his love for us. Even we heard the words from John the Baptist last week when he said, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. We're so prone to put too many obstacles in his way. We want the the path to be windy. He'll get there eventually kind of thing. I'm not ready to give things up. I'm not ready to let him into some of the more private places of my life or anything. But, But if we listen to the words of John the Baptist, he says, make straight that path. We We declutter his path forward to us. And we're ready to allow him to uh, come and rescue us and give us that new name. But he will go through those lengths. He will jump over those hurdles. He will move those mountains. He will get to you. Why delay? Why wait? These are difficult things for us to accept the challenge of, but as we do that, we're going to see that he is our personal savior. You might've heard that expression for many years. Invite Jesus to be your personal savior. And sometimes we just go, okay, that's just means it's for me and everything, but really it's, it's for you, you, whatever Simon you are, it's for you. And he wants to make us all Peter's, whatever that means to him and for his kingdom. 
Let's pray and prepare our time to close out in worship. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us around your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of your people. But I thank you, Lord, too, for those that are willing, God, to let you to continue, let you continue to carve out the aspects of their heart that they often withhold. Lord, we are a private people. We are a defensive people so often. And you come in such personal uh, ways and such private ways and you speak the things that encourage us or open our eyes to the truth of who you are or how well you know us. And it starts to chip away our resistance just a little at a time. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Thank you, Lord, for your care. We pray, Lord, that we would, we would respond in kind with just allowing you more and more access to us to remove more of the Simon aspect of our life to give you and your spirit more of, uh, of the control that we need to yield, Lord, to make us the Peter that you'd have us be. We thank you, Lord, for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.